0: The following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. I ran across a new sport this past week. It's called... gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to say this, okay? Calcio storico. So if you speak Italian, don't get on my back because that's Italian and I don't speak Italian calcio storico, which loosely translated to historical soccer, that's, that's the English translation. Um, and, and while it's called historical soccer, it, it's only vaguely similar to soccer. In fact, the people who play this game would actually say it's more like rugby, mixed with soccer, mixed with bare-knuckle boxing. <laughs> I kid you not, this is a real thing that is played only in Florence, Italy. Nowhere else, at least no other, nowhere else is it sanctioned as a sport or as a game. And, and basically what it is, is once a year, they play this violent game. And it is so violent that they only play it once a year. The four quarters of the city of Florence each have a team. And in order to play the game, you have to have been born in that quarter of the city. And you can only play on that team for the rest of your life. But they play one tournament a semifinal, so two of them play, and then a final. And they play them 10 days apart. And that is it, because when you play the game, everybody who plays ends up hurt. Broken, broken legs, broken ankles, broken jaws, uh, concussions, cracked ribs, internal bleeding, like whatever you can think of, this happens in this game. So they only play at this one time of year. And the crazy thing is this, the teams that play, They train all year round. They commit themselves to their team and to this game that is only going to be played this once a year. And they do it all as volunteers. Nobody gets paid a cent. And if you ask these guys, like, okay, why would you put yourself through this? Why would you go into this? Why would you take this on and not get paid? Like, they've got to take time off work for this stuff. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. And if you, if you see interviews with these guys, they will say almost exactly the same thing. Let's say, we don't do it for the money. Why do you do it? I say, we do it for the glory of Florence. Or they say, we'll do, we do it for the, the people of our city. They say, we do it because we, we just love our city so much. See, there's this bigger thing than the injuries, than the, the pain and the suffering. Over the past two weeks, we've talked about Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1 and 2, and we've talked about his calling, and we've talked about how it relates to to you and me and to the calling that God has put on our hearts and puts in our lives. And it's important for us to to understand the unique calling that God has given to each and every one of us. However, it is possible for us at times to become so hyper-focused on ourselves that we forget the bigger picture. We forget the grand design. Because you see, we were not created to do our work. God calls us and equips us to work for his glory and to contribute to his mission first and foremost. What we do as individuals is important as a part of God's greater calling. So let me ask you this question. How do we see God's mission and purpose? for his church, for his people, as the guiding principle in our own individual callings. We're going to talk about this as we get into Nehemiah chapter 3. And, and what we're going to do today is a little different than what we normally do, but we're going to read through some of Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to get the, the overview of this chapter. We're going to talk about what's going on here, and then we're going to go in and talk about what this means all right, and how we can apply this in our lives. So we're going to start Nehemiah chapter three. And, and when we get to this point, we're going to see Nehemiah giving us the first look at how the work gets done. Remember the last couple of weeks, we've seen God call Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to make this 900 mile, three month journey from, from Susa back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls around God's city. And Nehemiah goes. And now we're going to see how Nehemiah had, had a passion and a plan and how now it's being put into action. So let's start just Nehemiah chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. Okay, stop right there. What we get here in this very first verse is Nehemiah describing where the work begins. He tells us it happens at the sheep gate, but the more important thing here is that he says it starts with the high priest and the rest of the priests. Well, why does he start there? Why is that so important? This is important because it shows the buy-in of the leadership of the people of Israel. The people looked up to the high priest and to the priests. They were the leaders of the people in that day. And Nehemiah starts there. He says, listen, the priest, the high priest, the priest, they see the importance of this work and they are dedicating themselves to what God has laid out here. And so we see the people then following the lead of the high priest and the priest, right? The rest of the chapter is gonna follow along the outside of the city and give you every gate that exists along around the city of Jerusalem and tell you how people worked, who was working, where they were working, and how all of this gets done. But it starts because he says, listen, the high priests, the priests, they see the importance of this and they're on board. Now, let's let's see how a little bit of this plays out. We'll continue in verses two through um, verses two through four. And it says, the men of Jericho built next to Eliashib. And next to them, Zakur, son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Meramoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Beanna, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. I practiced that a lot this week. <laughs> verse 2 through 4, right, starts showing us how the work gets done and, who's in, and even through verse 5. And there's something that happens in verse 4. There's one phrase. It says, um, in verse 4, it says, Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hechaz, made repairs. This word repairs is important in this chapter. It actually occurs 39 times in this chapter alone where we see they made repairs. They made repairs. And when it says made repairs uh, in the original language, it's not just about like patching up a little hole in the drywall. It's talking about, it's, it's talking about working to re-strengthen and restore the original strength of the wall. This is an act of restoration, of completely rebuilding and making stronger what was there, right? And and again, as we go through the rest of the chapter, it says, and after them, so-and-so made repairs to such-and-such place, right? And over and over and over, they made repairs, they made repairs. They're doing this work that God had laid out before them to strengthen the damage that was done to the wall. Now, as we go through this, we see this pattern. They made repairs here. They made repairs here. There's there's two little breaks from this that I want to point out. The first we we just read in verse five where it said, beside the Tekawites made repairs, but, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. And so there is a group associated with this project that is not on board, right? Some were not excited about this work. Now, we understand Tekoites from, from a city that's about 11 miles away from Jerusalem. So these people were coming from, from outside of the city to come do the work. But in any case, it's not 100% that everybody wants to do the work that God has called these people to do. So we keep that in mind as we go through. We're gonna see this play out in, in several places over the next uh, four chapters. And yet, In spite of that, even though not everyone was 100% on board or 100% excited, if you read down, you get to places like verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Beside them, Shalom, son of Helohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters. This is a significant phrase, this little phrase, he and his daughters. Because what it tells us is Shalom couldn't get enough men from his area to do the work. And in this day, in this culture, it was the men who did the work. It would have been, uh, it, it was very unusual for the women to do physical labor. And when Shalom couldn't get enough men, what did he do? He called his daughters into work. This group was so committed to the plan, to the work that lie ahead of them, that they bucked the social norms to fulfill this part of God's work, to fulfill what God had called them to do. If you read down finally, skipping down, this chapter ends in verse 32. It says, The goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upstairs room and the corner on the sheep gate. The chapter ends at the sheep gate right where the chapter began. Nehemiah's description covers the full city. If you read through this whole passage, if you slog through all those names, you see that he covers the entire surrounding of the city. The entire wall is worked on by those who are committed to what God has called them to do. Well, okay, what does this show us? What does this teach us about some community calling of the family of faith. If we're to find success as individuals and in the body of Christ, we learned three important lessons from this chapter. First, we see that this always starts with a foundation of unity. A foundation of unity. Nehemiah rallied the people of Jerusalem Around one thing, and that was a vision for God's glory. That was what tied these people together. That's what set them to the work at hand. It was a vision for God's glory. Remember in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, we get what what Nehemiah says to the people. He says, You see, we are in trouble. Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, God's city, lies in ruins, and these gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to them, had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Right, their hands were strengthened by God's power, by God's glory, because they were set off to rebuild God's city. The glory of God was what united them Right, And remember, these people were not construction workers or carpenters. They came from all different walks of life. But they saw that it was time, here and now, with this mission set before them, to hit pause on their their personal callings, the work that they had in their lives, and to come together around this bigger picture of God's glory. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verse one through six, the Apostle Paul says this, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. It's this calling, right, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You know what's really interesting about this passage that we as American readers really easily miss? When you look at this passage, every time it says you, it's plural. The Greek language in which this was written has actually a different word for you singular and you plural, right? We just say you as one or you as all. The Greeks had different words. One was singular, one was plural, right? The way that they use those words. And here, everyone is plural. So when Paul says, look, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, you need to seek this unity because we have one calling, one bond. One. He's not saying you as an individual. He's saying you, the body of Christ, you, the church, you God's holy chosen family. See, he's telling us that that our unique callings are unified through the spirit and through Christ's sacrifice and in God's church. Now that might bring up a question for us, right? Well, what is the church then? What is the church? Let me give you a, a real simple functional definition. This doesn't go into all the little things, right? So if there's, there's all kinds of branches we can take off this, but let me give you a really simple functional definition of what is the church. The church, God created the church, the body of believers to join together people from different backgrounds with different skills and different callings to teach, train, and equip one another to grow in faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. And you want a simple functional definition of the church? Maybe that's not that simple. That's a, that's a little involved. But it basically comes down to this. God created the church. He called the church together. This is not our invention. This is God's calling that we would come together to know Christ and make him known. And that means understanding our personal callings, but understanding that we are part of a body that comes together for the purpose of God's kingdom above all else. We are called, we are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without that, nothing else matters. Right? If we don't understand how infinite God's love is, how incredible our rebellion is, how great the gift of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and complete deliverance is, if we don't get that, then, then, then it is all about us, right? Because I've got to be better. I've got to do better. I've got to accomplish. I've got to earn God's blessing. I've got to earn God's love. I've got to be something. when we recognize that our unity is in the gospel. We go, yes, I am not enough. I'm not deserving. But God has made me who he wants me to be. God is creating me. He is molding me. He is shaping me. He's bringing me into his church that we together might know the gospel and proclaim it to the world outside the walls of this building. We're united as the church in the gospel to know our calling and to help others know theirs and to contribute to God's glory wherever he sends us. See, your individual calling in your life, it may be to some church ministry. It may be to overseas missions It may be to building a business. It may be to serving your community in some organization or holding a political office. It may be to writing encouraging notes. It might be for caring for a couple of students who need the time and investment that you have to offer. We all have individual callings. But in the end, your calling, my calling, from an individual perspective is only fully served when it serves the mission of God's church, right? And by God's church, I don't mean this building, those of us who meet in this place. It starts here, but we're talking about God's kingdom, God's people, God's church. Without the foundational unity of God's glory, our mission as individuals will never be fully effective. It just becomes like a, like a scattered bunch of puzzle pieces, you can put a few together here and you can put a few together here, but you never get the picture until they are all brought together. It's the foundational principle of what you and I do, of our work, our mission, our calling. Do we build on the foundational principle that is centered on ourselves, on what we think, on what we like, on what we, f- we feel? Or is it built upon the unity of the body of Christ. We start with a foundation of unity. And when we start with a foundation of unity in God's glory, then it becomes easier to forge number two, a commitment to the plan. A commitment to the plan. See, Nehemiah's plan that he laid out before the people systematically set up groups of people to fixing specific parts of the entire wall if you go back and study, a lot of it is based on where those people lived. He had them fixing the part of the wall right near where they lived, taking care of that one aspect. And as everyone did their part, the whole wall gets built back up. And again, not all bought in. But then some went above and beyond, like Shalom and his daughter's. But what we see in this and what I want you to recognize here is that the people were not committed to Nehemiah. The people weren't committed to Nehemiah. Remember last week we saw when he comes to the city, right? he's never been to Jerusalem. He comes into town, he rests three days and then he rides a donkey around the outside of the city and then he comes to the people and says, okay guys, here's what God's called us to do. Somebody comes into town, spends three days resting, and then come tells you what you're supposed to do? do? Do you trust that person completely and fully? No, you're not committed to that person. You have no buy-in with that person. But when the, when the, when the Israelites saw that Nehemiah's plan worked to the end of God's glory, they were committed to the plan. They understood their callings in light of this bigger picture of God's glory. And so they set aside their individual work, their individual desires to follow the plan set forth by Nehemiah. See, in your life as you're walking through, as we've talked the last couple of weeks that you examine, you try to figure out what God is calling you to do as an individual, that is, that is very important for your life but recognize that there may be times, there may be instances where God says, hold on. I want you to set this aside for a minute because I've got something else I need you doing. There's something else I want you to do. God may call you to set aside your plans for a time to build the purpose of his kingdom, to build the glory of his great and awesome name, right? And the question for us is, Do we become so hyper-focused on what I'm supposed to do, what I need to do, that we miss what God may be calling us to step aside and step into? And when he calls us to step out of our plan, are we ready and willing to follow his plan? In John chapter 21, after Jesus' resurrection, He's coming, he's talking to the the disciples. And this comes right after Jesus has restored Peter. And Jesus gives Peter this bit of information, this calling in John 21, verse 18. He says, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, I've just restored you. You said you, you love me, that you will feed my sheep. You will take care of my people. He says, listen, now, just know you once had freedom. That freedom will be gone. Right? He's, he's really telling Peter, you are going to be put to death for your faith. Let me ask you this. You think this is what Peter had in mind when he left that family fishing business three years ago? Like, oh, there's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to bring power back to Israel. I'm going because someday I'm going to be tied up and led where I don't want to go and be put to death. This is going to be awesome. No, no, not at all. But at this point, you starting to grasp who Jesus is and he trusts Jesus and he trusts Jesus' plan and so Peter accepts that and as a result becomes part of changing the entire world right when you read the book of Acts you see apostles going out planting churches proclaiming the gospel you see the start of the change of the world when God's plan doesn't look like our plan, to which direction will we commit? We commit to the plan, to God's plan. And with a foundational unity and a plan for God's glory, we work together in this community calling with number three, a spirit of perseverance a spirit of perseverance. And again, think about what the, uh, what the Jews are doing as they rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding walls, putting up doors and gates. And by gates, we're not talking about little like garden fence gates. We're talking about massive doors, massive gates. And they're doing it with no power tools, no large equipment, no cranes, no bobcats. This was exhausting, back-breaking, finger-crushing work. And they set to it, and they got the work done. Anytime I do a construction project around the house, Um, I get done and dad always looks at me and he goes, so you ready to give up ministry and become a carpenter? And I'm like, no. Every time I tell him this, I'm like, this is a great reminder of what God has called me to do and what God has not called me to do. (laughs) Because not only do do I become frustrated and just have trouble with every aspect of any kind of building project, but after one day, like if it's a multiple day project, after one day, I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. Like I need a day off. And I'm ready to give up after a day. And to me, that highlights the spirit of perseverance of the people of Jerusalem. Because you know, after the first day, some of them, who, who this is not what they do, they are just exhausted, they are beat. They had to be ready to quit. There had to be at least a voice in the back of their head going, "You don't really need to do this." But they persevere. Why? Because of the unity of God's glory, that foundational unity of God's glory, and because of their commitment to this plan. And this spirit is what we need set before us. The spirit of perseverance in order to grow and mature in our calling as individuals and as a church family. See, God is gonna call you to some things. He's gonna ask you to do some things that you're gonna feel unqualified and unprepared for, things that are outside of your comfort zone. And if our whole idea of our calling is about me and making me happy and making me satisfied and letting me feel a certain way about my life, then when that time comes, we're gonna be frustrated and upset and we're gonna wanna quit. but if our understanding is that the calling is for the 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 for God's glory that he might be made known then we find strength and perseverance in those moments because we know that this call this moment this act this is about more than me this is about something greater and God is going to give us everything we need to persevere no matter how unqualified or unprepared, we feel. I love in, in Acts chapter 4, um, verse 13, right? The Peter and John have been out proclaiming the gospel. And the, the religious leaders bring them in front, and they're like, listen, you guys gotta stop this stuff. Like we, we, all this stuff you're doing, proclaiming the gospel, changing people's minds. Stop it. but there's this really interesting verse in verse 13. It says, when they, this is the religious leaders, well-trained, theologic minds, theological minds that, that would rival the greatest minds of all time. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Where's the power and the strength of Peter and John's proclamation of the gospel? It's not seminary degrees, it's not teaching experience. It's that they had been with Jesus. The disciples weren't qualified theologians or evangelists, but they were faithful and they persevered in whatever God called them to. Through every trial, through every pain, every suffering. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. We want to know (laughs) what it looks like to fulfill our calling as as individuals and as a church, as a part of the body of Christ. And we have to ask ourselves this question, are are we prepared for that? Not by some special education, but are we prepared for that? by Having been with Jesus. Have we been with Jesus this week? And notice, I'm not asking you, did you read your Bible this week? I'm not asking you, did you pray over a meal this week? I didn't ask you if you did something nice for another person this week. Have you been with Jesus? Because you can do all those things without ever being with Jesus. But have we been with Jesus? Have we found our strength, our hope, and our joy in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Have we allowed him to speak to us? Have we allowed him to challenge us this week on things that we're absolutely certain that we're right on? Have we allowed him to encourage us in those moments of fear, of terror, of uncertainty? Has he been the rock to which we run when we are tired and scared? Have we been with Jesus? Have we allowed him to provide everything we need to persevere, to maintain our focus and our direction at the work that God has at hand? Whether that is directly related to our individual calling or whether that's something that he brings to us, something that changes our direction a little bit, that pulls us aside? Have we been with Jesus? Our calling as a family of faith is not about some specific task or specific ministry that we need to be doing in this church. It's not that we have to have this Bible study or we have to do that outreach in the community around us. We come to those specifics through the depth of our calling. And our calling is simply this, to know Christ and to make him known. To know Christ and to make him known. And and that, that is a task that is too great for any one of us. Whatever your individual calling is, you will not fulfill that on a grand scale. It requires a community effort. It requires the encouragement we find from one another. It requires the strength we gain from walking and working alongside one another. It requires the accountability that we have from submitting to a brother or sister in Christ. It requires us. And again, we need to see, to engage, and to activate God's mission for our individual lives. But the ultimate purpose, the one our individual calling supports is to serve God's church, to proclaim the gospel. And my calling cannot sufficiently do that. Your individual calling cannot sufficiently do that. It requires us. It requires a foundation of unity, a commitment to God's plan for his church and a spirit of perseverance. Only then do we see God's glory proclaimed and displayed in its fullness. Church, family, may we be bold in the missions that God sets before us this week. And may we see our work and our efforts in light of the bigger picture of God's calling for all his children. In doing so, let us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, serve his glory in faithful obedience and a clear declaration of the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, Father God. We thank you for this day, and we thank you for the truth of your Word. We we thank you that you remind us that we are not the center of the world. We are not the center uh, uh, of even our calling. You are the center. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the center. And we admit that we can get lost in the kind of spiritual navel gazing about me and about mine and about all the stuff around that. But Lord, may we come back over and over and over again to just. Rejoice in the fact that you have called us to be your children. That you have blessed us. And that you have united us together. That we don't have to be strong enough or good enough or smart enough or uh, equipped enough to take on the world around us. And to take you into that world. Because you have made us a part of the body. And we thank you for that gift and that blessing. And Lord, we pray that as we prepare for whatever you have in store for us in the week ahead, that we would go as part of the body, going where you call us, going where you send us, but always knowing that it is not about us. It's about you and your kingdom. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And in your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.